Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It's Tuesday, the 17th of August. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good, and let us seek out opportunities today to make the goodness of God known to others. So again, uh, thank you for your ongoing prayers for our family, the services for my brother-in-law, Joe, uh, the visitation on Sunday, and then the celebration of life yesterday, and then ultimately uh, the burial. All of it was a testimony to the reality of who God is and his all-sufficient grace. And yeah, to the depth of grief and to the joy of um, knowing that someone is in the presence of the Lord and that one day we will um, see one another because that's how resurrection glory works. I don't know a lot of details about resurrection glory, but I do know that. Like at some point, somewhere along the way, we're going to get to see each other again. Two takeaways from my brother-in-law's service yesterday. Death is hard, uh, and Jesus makes all the difference. Uh, I learned a lot about Joe yesterday. I learned that there were an extraordinary number of people in the world who called him Papa. I met many of them. I met a guy named Damon who regarded Joe as his dad. Damon's son regards Joe as his grandfather. I met David, um, who likewise regards Joe as the first father figure he ever had in his life um, and the person who taught him to sing. And David's now a worship leader at a church in Detroit. Person after person after person stood up yesterday to give testimony to what Joe had done for them. Now, let me just say, if you were to search for an obituary for Joe LaBerge, you're probably going to be hard-pressed to find one. Why? Because he did not live his life uh, in the world in such a way that there would be much to say in an obituary. That's kind of weird because yesterday, person after person after person, it took two hours, person after person after person stood up. These are the kinds of testimonies they gave. He took me to 90 meetings in 90 days to help me get sober. He was the first man in my life to treat me like a father should. He took care of my baby boy so I could go to rehab and get off the street and off crack. He changed my life. I literally wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Joe. He knew the father so intimately. I wanted to know God the way Joe knew God. He told me he was proud of me every time he saw me. He told me every time he saw me that God loves me. Before I was a believer, Joe would stop every time he saw me on the side of the road. He would make sure I had something to eat, and he would tell me, God loves you. And I remember thinking, dude, if there's a God, you surely belong to him. And then this gentleman said, now I know that's exactly right. Joe showed me that. I thought he was crazy at first. Now I know he was just doing what all of us are supposed to do, 
showing the love of God to everybody all the time. Uh, Somebody else said, Joe never met a mechanical mess he couldn't fix. And Joe never met a person he didn't immediately love. So today, let me invite you in the spirit of my um, brother-in-law, who, well, let's just say that the worship service yesterday in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and because of that, the celebration of the new life uh, that my brother-in-law now lives in heaven forever, sing and dance and shout and take off your shoes and eat and go barefoot and pack a snack and share the love of God with others like there's no tomorrow. Say what needs to be said to those you love and don't put off anything that you could do for someone else today. When we come back, Nick Pitts and I are going to uh, touch on some events in the world. We're going to talk about Haiti and then we're going to talk about um, some of the numbers we now know from the U.S. Census. We'll be right back. Joining me now, our friend Nick Pitts. He serves at the Institute for Global Engagement. Nick, welcome back. Carmen, so great to be with you this morning. Wonderful to have you. All right, so the situation in Haiti is, um, you know, I could just lift up the name of the nation and we would have a litany of reasons to be talking about um, the concern that we have for people there. Today, we lift it up because of the... uh, horrific earthquake that uh, that Haiti has experienced, the second one in a decade, uh, or just over a decade, um, and that in the aftermath of the assassination of Haiti's president and the fact that, you know, well, now we're in hurricane season. So um, pick up wherever you want to um, in terms of the storyline here and just to share with folks, um, you know, not only what is happening there, but maybe how people are responding. Yeah, so if we can walk away with two particular themes of what's happening in Haiti right now, we just need to know the situation that's happening in Haiti and where Haiti is situated. So let's start with the first, where it's situated. So obviously we're we're very familiar with what's happened over the weekend. An earthquake, earthquake struck the island um, just a little bit further north in a particular fault zone in Haiti than the, the devastating um, earthquake from 2010 that killed thousands of people. This earthquake struck Haiti over the weekend, and it's killed at least uh, more than 1,200 individuals. Just absolutely devastating. More than 6,000 are injured. Thousands of buildings have been destroyed. Just absolutely tragic. Haiti suffers more natural disasters than most Caribbean nations. Widespread deforestation has left the country, especially prone to flooding and mudslides. And like I said, it's situated atop a, a Caribbean tectonic plate in an area that's especially prone to uh, earthquakes at this particular time. Coupled with that, you've got a Hurricane Grace that is making its way through the area right now. And it's just absolutely drenching the island right now, really hindering rescue efforts and support and assistance that can be offered 
to the country that's just reeling from natural disaster. Coupled with that, though, so that's where it's situated. Now it's important to understand the situation that's happening in Haiti right now. It's one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. More than half the population lives underneath the poverty line. And what they're experiencing right now is just an uptick, a surge in violence and lawlessness right now that many of us are familiar with due to the assassination of their president a couple of months ago. But what we're also seeing is that there's a, uh, there have been, according to a UN report, 234 kidnappings in the previous 12 months in Haiti, which is an mm. increase of 200% from the previous year. And then killings are just uh, um, out of control right now. The homicide rate, yeah, there's been, a, uh, there was 1,300, uh, over 1,300 killings in 2020, which was just skyrocketing from the previous year. There's a approximately about 150 gangs which operate on the Haitian side of the island. And so you're just seeing a sense of lawlessness. Now, probably some of your uh, listeners are saying to themselves, well, what does lawlessness have to do with with, uh, the earthquake that's happening? Well, when there is not order on an island or an order in an area that's suffering from a natural disaster, it's really hard to get lines of assistance that can go to the people that need it the most. When there's lawlessness, it hinders it hinders the ability to get assistance because the assistance is hijacked and stolen and doesn't get to the people that need it the most. And so you have a chaotic situation right now in Haiti where you've got thousands of people that have been injured and hurt, thousands of people that have lost their lives, that have no home right now, and you have a lawless situation where people, where it's it's very difficult to get the help that they need. So as we're praying for um, the situation in Haiti today and for the people there, let me also you know, share with you that churches across the Southern Peninsula um, have been largely destroyed. The New York Times is reporting, I mean, this is a lot for the New York Times to say, quote, the destruction of churches across the Southern Peninsula may be the biggest blow to longer-term support for Haitians in the affected area. For many Haitians, their only source of aid throughout their entire life in the absence of strong government institutions has been the church. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many now lie in ruins um, across the region, leaving entire towns and at least one city without one church standing. So I think that as um, as we recognize the desperate situation that doctors and hospitals in Haiti are facing. Um, And as we recognize that there are tens of thousands of non-governmental organizations on the ground in Haiti, um, we also recognize that the church is the, is the institution, the local institution through which, you know, God not only intends to deliver the good news, uh, the saving grace of the gospel, but real substantial hope and help to people and so churches in the region have been decimated. So let's be a people who are um, praying for the strengthening of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Haiti. And then let us, as good neighbors only 700 miles away from Haiti, um, let us be uh, coming alongside those who are in a position to give tangible uh, resources and aid. All right, Nick and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a few of the takeaways from the U.S. census numbers that have come out, what we might learn 
um, about ourselves and our neighbors, or at least the neighborhoods in which we live and how those have changed and how that is going to change the political landscape of the country. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Talking to Nick Pitts. You can follow him on Twitter at J Nick Pitts. You can also find him at the Institute for Global Engagement. Um, Nick, let's talk about the U.S. Census. We just have some. We don't really have a lot, but we have some census numbers. I'm wondering um, what you're seeing in the numbers that you have read and what it means for me and my neighbors. Oh, get ready, Carmen. It is getting diverse in here. And so it, it, this is this is the 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 geekiness of numbers just um, just makes me come a lot. And so since this um, um, last week started reporting more of just their particular findings when it comes to ethnicity, how individuals are self-identifying themselves relative to ethnicity. And it's just it, it is just so increasingly uh, becoming apparent that we are becoming more diverse as a nation. Non-Hispanic white population declined by 2.6% uh, since 2010. Um, this is the largest, this is the first time there's been a decline in the white population for the first time in the nation's history. African-American population grew by 5.6%. Asian population grew by 35%. But what was most interesting to me is people who reported being more than one race just absolutely spiked. We just saw, uh, we just saw it like an unexpected surge of individuals that were beginning to be very clear of their multi-ethnicity, multi-ethnic identity, of reporting it on the census. So when you say, um, like you and I might be giddy that, um, you know, it's getting more diverse in here, but there's definitely people who don't respond to that with that kind of positivity. I, I think that mm-hmm. it would be helpful for us to talk about the numbers may be down two conversational um, pathways. One would be mm-hmm. um, what what might we expect from congressional redistricting? Because when, you know, when we talk about census numbers, you know, there's kind of two two things in mind. One is, hey, that means that some people are going to get more members of Congress and other people are going to lose members of Congress. And that's going to, sh- you know, that is the potential to really shift things. So that's one mm-hmm. conversation I'd like to have on the political front. The other is sort of on the church front, because as, um, you know, as churches recognize, not only in urban centers, that those urban centers are becoming more densely populated and more diverse. That's not a surprise maybe to urban people. But I think there's a lot of people in rural communities that have likely not taken into account just how diverse their rural communities now are and how the church needs to respond to that. Yeah, so uh, first, from a political standpoint, um, uh, as to be expected, every 10 years, um, there will be a redistricting that occurs to make sure that each congressional district has approximately 760,000 citizens um, in each congressional district. And so what you'll begin to see over the coming days and weeks and months is the announcement of particular maps to match those numbers Um, and what's called uh, uh, gerrymandering, where congressional leaders or elected officials will begin to uh, kind of form maps that would be advantageous to either make it a stronghold one way or the other uh, for a particular party. And then also, to we'll, we'll start to see how some maps begin to just realize that once 
one party strongholds are now going to become weaker. Um, and gerrymandering is not, um, uh, let's say, to put it lightly, it's not limited to one particular party. Uh, just over the past 10 years, we can point to both parties that have done it um, and gotten a slap on the wrist by elected officials. Uh, specifically, you've got North Carolina and Maryland um, have been slapped on the wrist over the past 10 years for how they've redrawn their maps in light of the census. But the second thing, and I think you make a really great point, is that we, similar to Brazil, what Brazil experienced was we started to see just a, a multi-ethnic population begin to emerge um, in Brazil. And I think we're going to start to see that the numbers are if the numbers are any indication, we'll start to see that as well. So individuals in rural and city areas will we'll start to see this. And the numbers that really do point it out for me is like, so according to Pew, at least 19% of new marriages in the U.S. now involve spouses from different race, uh, racial or ethnic groups. That's up from 11% in 2000. One in seven U.S. infants were multiracial in 2015. That's nearly tripled the share. Um, since 1980. And what we know about this that will only continue to expand if the past is any indication is that uh, non-Hispanic whites, even though they make up 58% of the population, they only make up 51% of the babies that were born are considered white. So we're, the non-Hispanic whites, the birth rate is going down, but among multiracial um, or uh, other minority um, ethnicities, there there are vastly outperforming and vastly uh, multiplying at a much quicker rate. Um, so we're just going to continue to see a very diverse uh, population grow even more so. And I think that for um, those of us who live in rural communities, this is not a surprise. Like, right, we definitely recognize that there's a growing diversity um, in our in our communities. What I'm not sure that I'm observing is a growing diversity inside of local congregations. I see mm. new congregations, new communities of faith starting um, because people moving into the community are not being invited enthusiastically or in, in a genuine way into existing local congregations. And so that's that is one of the things, one of the challenges I just want to set before people who are listening today. And myself as well. Like, who do I choose to invite to church? And and then do I sit with them? Do I introduce them around? Do I make sure their kids get to, you know, engaged in whatever we're doing, vacation Bible school or, you know, what whatever's happening? Am I making sure that I'm intentionally reaching out to new people in the community who don't look like me? I'm, I might very well be reaching out to people who are new to the community who look like me. Am I also intentionally reaching out to new people in my community who don't look like me um, and being sure that they are invited into the fellowship of God's people um, in my local community? And I just, you know, I'm going to say that to myself, and I just want to say it to everybody else listening today. Oh, I completely agree. The church is meant to display the manifold wisdom of God, according to Ephesians 3. And we want to be cognizant that we're not just we're not getting rid of that manifold particular component um, to the rulers and authorities of this world and how increasingly beautiful it is that the church can draw individuals from a variety of different ethnicities. And those differences can melt away as we worship the one that unifies us all. Uh, amen. 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 And amen. People are precious. 
Mm-hmm. And we need to be yeah. treating one another as such. So um, uh, life update. Do you have any life update? You know, you have like 30 seconds. You know, I've got I've got a little sh- some shenanigans that'll happen with me and some of my buddies. We're going to a bachelor party. Uh, we're doing a bachelor party this weekend and then getting married. I thought we might be 2nd. getting close. When, when yeah, is the October wedding? October 2nd. October oh, 2nd. And so everybody get ready. Time. There will be a, no dance floor is safe on that day. There will be a new Mrs. Pitts, and we are totally <laughs> excited about that. So, um, Nick, thank you, and we uh, we are we are anticipating such joy with you and for you. Uh, and so, we know we haven't met her yet, but we love her already. So you can tell uh, her. I can't, I can't wait for her to meet y'all. Oh, you're so dear. All right, go have a great day. Make it a great day. We know you will. That is Nick Pitts. You can find him on Twitter at jnickpitts or at the Institute for Global Engagement. We'll be right back. My um, my inbox is awash in people asking for help to get the help that they need for their friends in Afghanistan. American servicemen members, Western diplomats, representatives of international aid organizations, pastors, members of the news media, regular people who have friends and colleagues in Afghanistan are desperately trying to arrange um, for now evacuations for tens of thousands of Afghans who assisted their work inside the country and who are now in the crosshairs of the Taliban. So you're going to hear about nations, including the United States, sending cargo planes in to evacuate people. The challenge is there are there are some 10,000 American citizens in Afghanistan and so that's, you know, who America is committed to getting out first. The same with Great Britain, the same with the other nations. When you hear that, you know, Spain is sending a cargo plane, they're sending that plane to get uh, people from their country out. So the people in the crosshairs of the Taliban are going to be all of the people who assisted Westerners in any way in their work in the nation over the last 20 years. So we are potentially talking about hundreds of thousands of people, uh, and the Taliban is uh, likely to stop at nothing to uh, to wipe them out. So we're going to talk about all of that next with Luke Moon. We'll be right back. Of all the billions of people on this planet, God chose you to parent your child. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Whether you have birthed children, adopted children, grandchildren, or a niece or nephew, God has converged your life with theirs for a reason. In a day when kids have access to all kinds of entertainment, it's easy for parents to feel they can't compete. But kids really do want more than video games, Facebook, and movies. Teens are hardwired to belong. They crave belonging to you. God chose you to parent your child. Make sure your teen fully understands the extent of their sacred position in your heart. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. The wise men will bow down before the throne and at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns. When the man comes around. 
All right, joining me now from Seattle, Luke Moon from the Philos Project. You can find him on Twitter at LukeMoon1. Dude, you got up early. Thank you. I did. I did. Well, you know what? I'm on like a 10-hour jet lag, so I was going to be up anyways. So I thought, you know, I might as well talk to Carmen. Damn, thank you. That's so great. I appreciate it. Um, All right, so we are going to talk about Afghanistan uh, let's talk about the math. Uh, let me just do this quick math. $83 billion that the United States has spent or invested, I don't know the right language there, in the last 20 years. 1,500 American lives, people paying the ultimate price. Um, so there's there's math, but there's there's then there's this aftermath of our foreign intervention in Afghanistan. So you can you can comment this morning um, on whatever you want to comment on in terms of Afghanistan. I have sort of briefed our listeners in on the situation, um, but I'm I'm happy to hear your assessment as well. Well, you know, unfortunately, it seems that, you know, we were bad students of history, right? Because we're we're the next in a long line of, I mean, I'm not sure we want to call ourselves an empire, but for the sake of this argument, let's call ourselves an empire who have who have broken upon the, the the shoals of Afghanistan. I mean, the Greeks did it, the British did it, the Russians did it, and here we are. Each one of them really basically failed, uh, and for a lot of reasons. I think, you know, one of the you – know, Afghanistan is very tribal, right? So one tribe isn't going to, like, die for another. Um, it's, it's also uh, – you. We, what we've learned is that you can't change culture – at the end of a gun, right? I mean, there's only so if 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 people don't want to change, and the kind of stuff that we're offering isn't particularly glorious, then they're not going to change, and that's a reality that we have to deal with. Um, yeah, it's my initial thoughts right now. Yeah, no, and I think that's really helpful. I um, I read a couple of things just in terms of reactions to the Taliban, you know complete takeover, the the pace at which it happened, um, the way in which it has happened, which, you know, in some places with no conflict at all, um, simply, you know, the laying down of, of weapons and the total surrender of entire cities. Um, and I and I heard I have heard um, one U.S. service member who was working very diligently to get his interpreter's family out of the country and has not been able to do so. You know, he described this as like mass murder by incompetence, like what what we are about to see. Um, And then I have heard also this language used that we have and actually other Western nations as well have a moral obligation to the Afghan people. The language there, I think, in both cases, murder by incompetence and moral obligation, um, I, I think I'm wondering in in the part of the world where Afghanistan is, is there a sense that anybody has a moral obligation to the Afghan people? And is there any sense that what is happening is happening due to the incompetence of others? Well, I do think that what is happening is is actually happening to the, as a result of it, in part of the incompetence of others. I think it was, you know, it's poor, it's poor, poor timing on the delay, poor planning in the in the withdrawal. Uh, I mean, we could have withdrawn at another time. We could have, uh, you know, we we left uh, Bagram Air Base uh, without even letting anybody know. We just kind of like, 
walked away from, from like you know it's like walking away from a party and not saying goodbye right like we just kind of just left except we left massive amounts of military equipment behind and and we're like well you know see you guys next week or not i mean we just kind of walked away um and you know it I mean, one of the other important things to consider is the fact that uh, you know the kind of things that the U.S. was promoting over there, particularly the soft power type things, were antithetical in many ways to, and are actually not just in Afghanistan, but many places across the world to the you know kind of traditional values. I mean, there was a, a rainbow flag flying over Kabul in June. Okay, so let's not like pretend that you know we're. we're you know the kind of thing. If it was, you know, we we went in there to to get Osama bin Laden and to crush Al Qaeda, and what we did that like ten years ago, and here we are, uh, ten years later, and we've gone from trying to get bin Laden to you know uh, making trying to sure change the culture, that, change the culture, and making sure yeah. that Afghan girls are free to wear miniskirts and you know and and you know drink alcohol and watch pornography. So right, okay, can like, you pause? But you have to. Yeah. So you have to pause there, though, and explain to people why that is so offensive to the Muslim mind. Well, Carmen, it's not offensive just to the Muslim mind. It's offensive to my mind, right? Like, right. I'm but a, you, you see what I'm, I'm saying, right? With, going, I'm a thoroughgoing <laughs> Christian, right? I'm. I'm committed. I know, but the overwhelming. <laughs> It, would it be fair to say that the overwhelming, like overwhelming percentage of people in Afghanistan are Muslim? Absolutely. Like, you and, know, probably pushing the, 98 percent, right? Yeah. And so the the rainbow flag flying over the U.S. embassy in June is a particular offense because it really does say to people, those Americans are seeking to export things we don't want. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and it's not just there. I mean, like it's you know this is this has been a normal practice of of the Democratic administration. I mean, I remember back in when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State under Obama, and and they had a you know a, a gay pride festival in in uh, the embassy in Pakistan. And I was like, are are you guys like completely blind to how that is perceived? By traditional societies, right? Like, you know, I'm I'm not of the mind that that like just because it's traditional in one sense isn't doesn't mean that it is not perverse in others. I mean, one of the things we got to be very clear here is there was a U.S. Mil- the, 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 uh, the I was I was told recently that that you know one of the ways that the U.S. identified places to bomb was because they could get uh, they could get the commander they were trying to to get was you know, talking on a, was looking at porn or something like that, right? And it was, there's, there's actually a very strong practice even right now of, of sex slaves and both boys and girls, uh, that kind of thing is, is a very common practice, right? But the, the optics, the, the, the use of that kind of, you know, see those Americans, they want to, they, they, they really just want your daughters to be like their daughters kind of thing and, and wearing miniskirts and watching pornography, right? Like that's a, that's an, that's a good marketing strategy. Uh, if you're a traditional society looking at America as a place of decadence. Mm. 
Um, I want to talk with you about what, if anything, you know about China's secret jail in Dubai. But we have to take a very brief break. I'm talking with Luke Moon from the Philos Project, and we'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Luke Moon from the Philos Project. You can find him on Twitter at Luke Moon One. Um, Luke, we have testimony from a young Chinese woman that she was held for eight days at a Chinese-run secret detention facility in Dubai, um, and that while she was there, she is aware that there were at least two other prisoners, both Uyghurs. What What more do we know? Well. Th- the uh, well, we know that the Dubai government is denying all of that, right? And that that she has she's claiming that you know China has this site in you know what's called a black site in Dubai uh, to for Uyghurs, and there's other Uyghurs there. I mean, honestly, this is not shouldn't surprise any of us uh, who who have been aware of you know the way that governments use off-site facilities outside of kind of the in less stable countries or or you know perhaps less uh, human right dependent countries in order to uh, extract certain kinds of information out of people uh, and and the, the fact that China would use such a facility I don't think is a is actually a big surprise uh, and what what I think will be interesting to watch over the next several weeks is how China engages with the Taliban because they're a lot closer, uh, and you know some of the some of the stuff that I've been reading there have been that you know you know that that China is is very invested in Afghanistan and and that kind of thing. So they're they're playing fast and loose potentially with the with with the toxicity there too that could be a problem for them. China and the Taliban um, certainly a. Uh a real consideration and the resources in Afghanistan, particularly the resources that are underground, um, appear to be of greatest interest to the Chinese. So that is definitely a story that we're going to, um, yeah, go ahead. And I, and I also think it's important, I mean, relatedly to, to what's happened over this week is, you know, Taiwan is also getting, looking very nervous right now because they're watching what happened, you know, over, over in Afghanistan and our response to that as well. And, you know, China has its eye on Taiwan and has even, you know, of in the in the last several days increased its rhetoric about, you know, engaging in a in a hot conflict uh with Taiwan. And, you know, the US has a commitment to defend Taiwan, but you know, one could say that we had a, def- a commitment to the defend the the, the people of Afghanistan that we committed to defending. And uh, so I think governments around the world who, who have looked at the U.S. as, oh, the U.S. will come and protect us, uh, they're all uh, looking right now at their own um, stockpiles, we would say, and their own uh, resiliency programs. Um, I, I bet you're also interested in the uh, the war games that Russia and China are currently engaged in with one another to test one another's readiness and weapons. And that seems like a uh, well, that yeah, that doesn't seem like uh, something that portends good for the future for anyone. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, we, yeah. We, we're basically the world's right now is like one of those cities across the U.S. that decided to get rid of all the police. And uh, we're like, weird, man, it's there's like more conflict in those places mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And nobody so wants strange. to be a police officer. Exactly. Like, right. right. I mean, I, there there are some like predictable when you look at it at a very local level and then you look at it geopolitically, it gets it gets much more complex, geo, you know, on the yeah. on the international stage. However, the the predictable outcomes of withdrawing the U.S. military from Afghanistan would be similar to withdrawing police from any any urban center. Like bad things are going to happen and someone is going to fill the vacuum. Um, All right. Let's talk about Israel and Hamas, because I know that um, uh, this is a particular expertise for you. So what do we need to know about the developing story there? You know, well, I mean, it's it's. I mean, Israel and Hamas are the, the over the last several weeks have been, you know, kind of been. There's been some tests again on on this new government, uh, the, you know, the the Bennett government, which is which is you know replaced the Bibi Netanyahu government, uh, you know, keeps you know getting uh, tested by Hamas and and to to see what he will do with the kind of. With, with his new government, right? Because it includes a lot of people who are uh, kind of they're, they're more in the kind of land for peace kind of mood. Uh, when I was there, you know, a few weeks ago, or actually last week, a few days ago even, and you know, Hezbollah was was testing the Bennett administration on on their resolve as well. Uh, and I think we're in this season right now with with Hamas, with Israel, with Hezbollah, where where there's a lot of kind of um, back channel conversations, but also you know upfront uh, confrontations. Just to you know, it's a, it's a new day, and people are trying to figure out how where everybody stands. I think that um, you know, as we think about what's happening around the world, and as we um, consider the plight of the people of Afghanistan. Um, you know, I my mind keeps returning, Luke, to just the reality that they're around the globe now, 1% of the world's population, a full 1% of the world's population, you know, they're not just homeless. They're without a homeland. They cannot go back to the places from which um, they are now displaced. So we have tens of millions of internally displaced people, but we now have 82.4 million refugee like people who are who can't go back to wherever it is that they're from and they also because of our current system can't really go forward so i mean do you see a coming reimagining of refugee resettlement globally because obviously the way we have been doing it or are doing it is not working well, right. well i mean uh, i mean there's a it's it's a part of this bigger issue of the the world is changing, the the policeman of the world, if you will, is uh, is stepping back from his duties. If and as a result, like the vacuums are being filled, people are being forced out of their homes and looking for a place to go. And the the international institutions, the the nations are are ex to to take people in. I mean. Listen, there was a whole big, uh, you know, the, the U.S. locked down its refugee program 
in the 20s and 30s, right? And there's been several ways. I mean, there's a long history of of people being forced to leave their homes. I mean, one of the things that I'm well aware of is is the number of times that the Jews were literally expelled from places. Like, if you're Jewish, leave, right? Like, in Mm -hmm. in in Britain, in Rome, right? Uh, in Spain, 1492, same with them. I mean, the, the Moors were kicked out as well. But it's, it wouldn't surprise me, Carmen, if we actually go back in that direction, because we're, listen, we're, we're, there's this whole thing about the myth of progress, right? The fact that we have, you know, the, the, the world at our fingertips on this phone that we are holding in our hands, Right, we know we know more than than any other people in any other point in history, but the thing of evil and sin runs through the heart of every one of us, and that hasn't changed, right? Mm-hmm. And our the capacity to do evil uh, hasn't changed. It just changed, you know, form, and it looks a little different. Obviously, you know, hopefully, the capacity to do good has also not changed, right? Because the king of the universe is still on his throne, and he still has a plan for this world and the people in it. And when we read about, you know, the pastors, the new pastors, the new churches in Afghanistan that have have come up in the last 20 years, the rise of, you know, the the, the church in Iran, the, the church in China, like the we're we're in a we're in a state of flux, but you know we got to make sure that we we ground things in both the reality of the human condition as being uh, fallen and and separated from God, but also in the reality that one day God will renew all things. And you know we're we're told that the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the kid will pull his put his hand in the den of a viper and and not be bit. That's that's the world where we hope for and look mm-hmm. for, and we got to the, the world in which we see now. We got to see it through real eyes, uh, but pray that um, God, in His wisdom, will um, be gracious to us. Right? Amen. Amen. Yeah, there's a there's a reality of evil and sin, um, and there is a river that runs through it, and that is yep. redemption, and it does um, it does lead to a different reality. Hey, thank you for reminding us of that substantial hope today. That is Luke Moon. You can find him at The Philos Project. We have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. So stay with us. Hey, just a reminder, you can always grab the podcast of this and every other program at MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.